Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. It was very encouraging to be over visiting Ben and Michael recently and to go to church with them and to see uh, a service where um, they had communion. <clears throat> and you know, I'm, I, I have occasion to be in churches in America with communion. And what I notice is that the trend now is that you put the communion someplace at a table and then say, ollie, ollie, in free, and everybody goes up as they feel led, and they take from the table, and maybe they read something from Scripture beforehand. Several churches I've been in recently, that's what they do. And so there's no words of warning at all to come to the table. You know, at least your mother says, don't come to the table unless what? Unless you've washed your hands, right? You have to wash your hands. But there's nothing like that in the church today. But over there in the Philippines, it was so encouraging to have the pastor actually read the warnings of Scripture when we were visiting Ben and Michael. Well, this morning I want to speak just a couple of minutes. I'll try to keep this very short. On John 16, 32 and 33, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Jesus says to his disciples, behold. Behold means what? Look! That's what it means. Behold is a fancy word for look. Notice. Heads up. Attention. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the text begins with Jesus saying, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. And he has said quite a few things to them. Uh, this is, and then he says in verse 33, these things I've spoken to you. And so our first question is, what were the things he's spoken to him? Well, this is part of what is uh, known as the upper room discourse. In other words, what, at the Last Supper, the, this is the, the body of teaching that Jesus has given them. The upper room discourse. And it goes from John 13 the whole way through John 17. Now, John 17 is a high priestly prayer. And so what we've just read here is the very end of 16. So this is the very end of Jesus' long teaching to his disciples right before Judas betrays him, right before he's arrested, right before his trial, right before his crucifixion, and right before his death. All right? This is the end. Now what had he said to them? Notice he says, these things I've spoken to you. 
Well, I'm just going to give you a couple of the things because a lot of it, most of it, you're very familiar with, but you won't realize it's a part of the upper room discourse. So these are the things he had just said to them. In John 13, 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. He testified and said what? Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray him. So one of the things he said to them was, one of you is going to betray me. Then, A little later in verses 33 and 34, you see the tenderness of Jesus with with his disciples. He says, little children, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A very typical thing for a dad or a mom to say. I love you, now would you please love each other to the kids, you know, you're fighting, you know, and your mother says, your dad and I love you, love one another, right? That's what Jesus is saying, love one another. I've loved you, I'm going to be leaving, now love one another. A little later, at the end of chapter 13, beginning of 14, Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Peter's all filled with bravado, Peter thinks that he'll never deny Jesus, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So he's saying to Peter, you don't think you're going to leave me? You don't think you're going to abandon me? Look, before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Very, very sad moment. And then immediately, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Then immediately, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. (laughs) This is unbelievable. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the most beautiful statements that Jesus ever makes, that he's gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. Then John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it for you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then a little later, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. A little later, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose himself to him. John 14, 28, you heard Jesus says that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus says another comforting thing in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. A little later in chapter 16, the beginning. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. A little later in chapter 16, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Then, getting near the end of chapter 16, where our text is, Jesus says, Truly, truly, 
I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And then uh, a statement that is very precious to us as a church. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. <laughs> That's a very, very precious promise to us because we love our children. And, and so our mothers are constantly in labor giving birth. And it's very, very hard work, very, very painful. And yet Jesus uses that as an example of the difficulties that are about to come on the disciples and the difficulties we all share in this world, and yet the joy that's ahead of us. And then right before our text, Jesus says, I have come forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. So now we come to the very end of his time with the disciples in this upper room, and it's the last thing he says prior to his high priestly prayer and his departure. And he says, these things, all those things we just read, I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And so what is it that is the peace that Jesus speaks of here? Well, there are two kinds of peace that we have in Jesus, right? First of all, we have the peace of the atonement. And this peace is the peace that is spoken of um, all through Scripture coming to us from God. In Romans 5, we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a little verse later in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. The world desires peace, but the world does not seek its peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason the world doesn't seek its peace through Christ is that the world is not humble. The world is not meek. The world does not want to confess its sin. The world wants to hide its sin. And so the world is talking about sin, peace all the time. Black Lives Matter is what the world thinks will bring it peace. If we can get racial reconciliation then we won't have cops shooting people anymore. Well, the fact is, the reason police officers shoot people is because people shoot police officers, right? And so the world is saying, no, 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 it's racism, and if we get rid of racism, then we won't have anybody killing blacks. And, and so the world talks about racism, the world talks about systemic poverty, the world talks about uh, neighborhoods, the world talks about general prejudice, and then the world puts together the United Nations and the world has peace talks, and the world never stops talking about peace. 
And my favorite quote that I've heard in my lifetime, I remember I was working, cutting, well, I don't know what I was doing in the backyard of our house, but I was listening to an interview with Bob Dylan. And this was probably back when I was in, still in my teens or early 20s. And Bob Dylan was being interviewed by somebody, and the guy kept talking to Dylan about peace. And he kept pressing and pressing Dylan. And Dylan was exasperated. He's always exasperated with any interviewer. (laughs) And finally Dylan said, uh, he said, you know, he said, peace He said, the only peace we get in this life is when we stop to reload our guns. And isn't that the truth? You know, I can't help but think in the wake of uh, Dallas, how many children do you think were slaughtered in Dallas on the day that the six police officers were killed? How many children are slaughtered all the time? And there's no flags flying at half-mast for those children. In other words, it's not to demean the death of the law enforcement officers at all, but just to recognize that even if we had absolute peace between law enforcement personnel and the citizens of this country, our country is awash in blood. The blood of the elderly, the frail, who are starved to death, the blood of the unborn, I, when I went in the ministry, I had a man who was an academic, at, I think, at Syracuse University and was known for handicap rights uh, uh, advocacy. And I had written a piece on euthanasia he had read, and he wrote me, and he, in, we had a couple letters back and forth. He said, at that time, this would have been in 83 or 84, he said he estimated that 250,000 elderly died every year simply because the nursing homes and their caregivers did not give them enough time to eat. And that was, what, 30-some years ago. We're a nation that's awash in blood. There is no peace in in this land. But it's not just a question of no peace in this land. The reason that we, as a people in this land, don't have peace is because we don't have peace with God. And if you look at this world and interpret it as an attempt to refuse to receive peace with God, a refusal to confess sin, a desire to redefine what is sin, all right, and a refusal to bow before Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable the hatred for God that we live in. And it's the only way to explain the irrational actions of our society. Nothing explains it except a hatred for God. A hatred for God, which is a hatred of his character, his perfections, the purity and holiness and truthfulness of God. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And so the first peace we receive in Jesus is peace with God through his blood. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we recognize that's not the only peace he's talking about here. He's also talking about us having peace in the world. Because he goes on and says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. So the context of him talking about peace is the tribulation that we have in the world. He's not just talking about the peace 
of justification by faith. And so you ask yourself here, what on earth is he talking about when he says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. So in what sense do we have peace? How do we have peace with the world? How do we have peace in the world? It's interesting that the preposition in is both in the statement, in me you may have peace, and in the world you have tribulation. Right? So Jesus says that those who have peace in him have tribulation in the world. And, you know, those of you who have been here the last few weeks as we've studied the next series of 10 Psalms know that one of the things I've told you I have difficulty doing is opening up a psalm to you that simply, simply presents the conflict we, and the difficulties we have in this world and the enemies. Remember I said last week that the two things that define the psalms is, is God's mercy and love and friendship with God and enemies in the world. And this is another place where it shows this. In me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. Now this word tribulation comes from a root that means pressure. In the world you will have pressure. Pressure. And this is a beautiful description of what we experience in this world. We have pressure all the time. And we start with ourselves. We have pressure because of our sinfulness. There are all kinds of things that we suffer pressure because of our sin, our lack of faith, and our just obstinate sin, right? All of you have had pressure in your life in the last 24 hours because of your sin. You know you should do something, you feel pressure to do it because you honor God, and you know that the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And so you feel that internal law of sin and death, and you feel pressure because you want to honor God. Many of us can say that we have pressure when we dream at night, right? You go to sleep at night, you expect some relief, and what happens? At night, you have pressure in your dreams. You wake up in the morning, you look at your dream, you know very well that in the dream were pressures between God and the evil one. You can see them in your dream. Augustine talks about this in the Confessions. Jesus says, in the world, you have pressure. Now, it's translated distress, anguish, tribulations. The root is pressures, all right? Persecutions, it's often translated in the New Testament. In the world, we're going to be persecuted. He says, in me you have peace, in the world you have tribulation. Now, listen. None of us want pressure. None of us want pressure. Imagine if you were to go on Facebook or, or uh, any of the social media. Imagine if you were to go on and talk about the pressures you feel. How many, how many friends would you have? You might be able to get away with it a few times. But if the main theme you talk about on Facebook is the pressure you feel, you know, if you have pictures of your children with pressured faces on Instagram, it's not going to cut it. 
what Christians all over the country are doing are lying on Instagram about how their life is unpressured. And so they make perfect furniture and sell it on the internet because they have so much time on their hands, because their children are so obedient, and because their husband's so understanding that they just have all the time in the world to be the best mother, right? Isn't this what Instagram's filled with, you know? Etsy, I mean, you've got everyone claiming that they have it what? Together. Nobody in the church today wants to admit that their life is pressured. I was uh, with somebody yesterday, Lucas Weeks, my son-in-law. And he just had a bad day. It was Alexander, you know, and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He'd found out that he needed to fix both his foundation and replace his roof in order for the sale of the house to go through. And even then, it probably wouldn't go through, right? And so I knew he was having a bad... Plus, he's the guy that bore a lot of the weight for this whole shindig today. And plus, he, plus he has a wife. You're the only one that ever laughs, Mark. If you weren't here, I would die on the vine. That's true. I meant you to laugh. Thank you for laughing. Must mean that your wife and Lucas's both are a pain, right? <laughs> and so he's married. He has kids. And he picks up the phone. The phone rings, and he picks up the phone. And I hear him say, good, how are you? <laughs> and I'm just sitting there thinking, Lucas, you're a liar. I think I said that. Didn't I say that to you, Lucas? I'm not sure. Did I say that to you? I don't remember. And then I heard him refer to the person on the other end as ma'am. And then I had an idea who he was talking to, and I knew it was somebody that Lucas did not want to bother with what? He didn't want to bother them with his pressures, right? In the world, you will have tribulations. In the world, you're going to have pressures. Now, why do we have pressures in the world? Well, because the world is constantly trying to conform us, to, to put us into its mold and make us look like everybody else. And all of us know exactly what this is about. We all know exactly what this is about. We're always being pressured by the world to speak in a language that's politically correct. We're supposed to speak about things that are horrors and shame and perversions as if they're lifestyle choices with no moral disapproval allowed, right? We all know this. We're all supposed to be ahead of the game. We're not supposed to ask a woman if she's pregnant because she might not be, <laughs> you know. We're not supposed to refer to it as sodomy or even homosexuality, but gay or queer. And queer is good now. And, and we could just keep talking about language forever, right? I mean, language is one of the ways that we either confess our faith or we deny it, right? And so many of us aren't under pressure, right? 
And the reason we're not under pressure is we're masters at speaking in a way that causes people to not know what we deep in our heart actually believe. We get very, very good at modulating our tones, changing our vocabulary, looking cheerful, fitting in. Many of us fit in very well. Right? Jesus says, in me you'll have peace and in the world you'll have tribulation and many of us have no tribulation in the world. Come on, it's true. You don't have tribulation in the world. Right? And so here's the problem. If you don't have tribulation in the world, then Jesus' statement, be of good cheer, doesn't apply to you. If you are not suffering shame for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then guess what? Jesus says, he's ashamed of you. (laughs) I remember when I was a little kid, and this is true, I used to ride the train up to the park. I go to the, don't, don't any of you kids do this, but I would go as a little kid down to the end of the block and there was a railroad track and I'd hop on the train and ride it over to the city park and then I'd get off the train, right? It was probably safer than crossing the street I would have had to cross to get over to the park if I'd walked there. And I got over to the park and there were a bunch of kids playing and I, I, since I moved away from Philadelphia when I was, I think, 10, I must have been six seven, somewhere around there, maybe eight. And I distinctly remember, as I played with these kids in my neighborhood, one of them saying to me, where do you go to school? And the minute I was asked that question, I thought, Delaware County Christian School. And I thought, I can't say that. You know, even at the age of seven. You know, I was different. They all went to the public school. I went to a Christian school, and I knew. And I said, well, Delaware County School. And immediately, my conscience was assaulted because I had been ashamed of Jesus Christ. I knew it was a sin. I didn't want to suffer persecution. I didn't want to be persecuted. I was ashamed of Jesus. I was ashamed of the word Jesus Christ. My father, when he was a a young he just entered the ministry. He wrote an article uh, soon, uh, many, many years ago. He wrote an article about his mother's appreciation for Norman Vincent Peale. And Norman Vincent Peale was a pastor in New York City that his mother liked. And my father wrote about how Norman Vincent Peale would never talk about Jesus Christ. Why does a preacher of the gospel not talk about Jesus Christ? Well, it's because he's ashamed. And who was in Norman Vincent Peale's congregation for years when he was ashamed of Jesus Christ? Well, another man who's completely ashamed of Jesus Christ, who's a Presbyterian, okay, and who says he doesn't have anything to ask Jesus to forgive him for, Donald Trump. Who made Donald Trump a preacher of the gospel who is ashamed of Jesus Christ? Okay? And so now today, we're not just talking about preachers that don't mention Jesus. We're talking about preachers who commend the most horrendous things 
sins that we can commit. Our land is Canaan. Our land is the land of Canaan that the Israelites were sent to wipe them out because of their sin, because the soil, the ground, had been polluted, and it was time for it to be cleaned by death. Okay? That is our nation. And listen, there's no way you can live for Jesus Christ today in this country. There's absolutely no way you can live for Jesus without suffering persecution. You can't do it. If, if there's one theme that I have had in this community since the time I've gotten here, it is, if you are living for Jesus Christ, you will suffer. If you're not suffering, you're not living for Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Don't fool yourself. Jesus says, in me you'll have peace, in the world you'll have persecution, you'll have pressure, you'll have distress. All right? And you will not have peace in Jesus unless you have persecution in the world. Okay? Okay? This is just blunt truth. In uh, Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, um, Indeed, this is, this is the Apostle Paul, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Okay? Every one of us, every single one of us is constantly, constantly, under pressure to deny Jesus Christ. It's relentless. It never stops. And it is intense. And this is the reason that Jesus says this. Jesus says in the Gospel of... Now, wait a second... Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, now listen, picture this. This is the very end of Jesus' life. And everything he said is about him leaving. He calls them little orphans. He tells them to love each other. He tells them that he's going to his father. It's just so tender. And it's all at the deathbed. Uh, Martin Luther says this. Luther says about this text, thus is the good night said and the hand shaken. That's how Luther refers to what Jesus says here at the very end. This is the good night and the shake hands. All right? But very forcibly does he conclude with that very thing around which his whole discourse is turned. Let not your heart be troubled, be of good cheer. And so this is the end. And Jesus says, be of good cheer. So look, you have a choice. You can be ashamed of Jesus and his words. And then when Jesus comes with all the holy angels and with the glory of God, he will be ashamed of you. Okay? That's your choice. 
you know the end of the story. How many of you have watched movies where you have the catharsis, right? You have the moment where finally after suffering, the protagonist has all the glory, you know, and the the glory descends and the gymnasium is standing and everybody's cheering or who knows what it is. You know, the woman looks at him with true love in her eyes and realizes that he was always protecting her. Whatever. You know? And you sit there and you get chills on your spine, right? What do you think at that moment? I hope what you think is, this is a sham. But it reminds me that he's coming again. It reminds me that Jesus has won. It reminds me that all the shame that I feel and all the pressure I feel and all the persecution I suffer, it ain't nothing because instantly this life will be over and I will stand before God and I will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy that I've been preparing for you from before the foundation of the earth. So do we live... Do we live for the day of victory? That's why Jesus says when the Son of Man returns in all his glory. He's saying that because he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. Because if you are ashamed of me, you're not going to get the goodies. And the goodies are going to be incredible. Because I'm going to return in glory. None of this babe in Bethlehem for him when he comes back. (laughs) You know, the kenosis is over. When he comes back, it's going to be with the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, a few personal words and then a couple more scriptures and we'll be done. Did you notice all the people in, 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 the, in the slides that have betrayed Jesus Christ and his people? Did you notice them? I hope you noticed them. I don't see any heads nodding. Well, no, you don't think of it that way, do you? The way we handle these things is, well, they found another church, you know? Did you notice all the people who have denied Jesus Christ, who have chosen the broad path and have turned away from Jesus Christ in shame? Did you notice them? Let me read to you um, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about, he's, this is the very end of his life. So, you know, people talk about shame <laughs> at the end of their life and be of good cheer. And the Apostle Paul's at the very end of his life, and he's writing another pastor and saying, buck up and do your job. Guard the good deposit. Make the church the pillar and foundation of truth. And so the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, what? Do not, what? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. (laughs) Come on, Mark, laugh. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 
but now has revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And then he says this, he says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I'm not ashamed. Retain the standard of sound words. <laughs> you, think, you think your pastors are intense? You just wish that you knew the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's getting all, you know, we've just all gone into the hymn there. For I know whom I believe in. Retain the pot. Pattern of sound words. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact. Now, this is the reason I'm reading this. He's at the end of his life. He's in prison. Everybody's ashamed of his chains. Why are his chains on him? They're on him because... He is retaining the pattern of sound words. He's guarding the good deposit. That's why he's in chains. And then he says this, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among whom are, and it's like bad enough to name a part of the world, Asia, but then he names names, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Any people named their son Hermogenes yet? Okay. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now listen. It's embarrassing for a preacher to speak to his congregation. Everything I say is supposed to be just objectively true and sterile so that you can take it or leave it as you want, and that leaves you and your pride, Right? I'm not supposed to talk about my love for you and your love for me. But the Apostle Paul does. Okay? And that's how we should be preaching today. And I'm going to absolutely tell you, when it comes to the pastors of this church and the elders of this church, none of us could do our work except that you have not been ashamed of our chains. Okay? That's the basis of this church. And yeah, okay, so it's 20th anniversary, and some of you have come back, and others haven't, and so this would be a time to, for me to sort of manipulate you and flatter you, right? And so because I don't want to flatter you, I shouldn't thank God for you, and I shouldn't tell you that you are the reason that I stand here, and that I have no desire to stand in any rich Presbyterian church. Why? If I was in a rich Presbyterian church, I'd have to flatter them. There would be all these rules about what I could and couldn't say. But here, what you want is you want shepherds who have rods and staffs that comfort you. Remember I was talking about my, my reading about shepherds? And, you know, I've always thought, how come nobody ever talks about how, what a comfort rods and staffs are? You know? Right? And so I was reading this book a few months ago, and it talked about, you know, the shepherd's staff. <laughs> it was like, you know, I had this 
theoretical knowledge that a rod and a staff were like disciplinary tools, right? They're not just like, uh, you know, a little feather duster or a fan or something that tickles your back nape of your neck, right? And so this guy's describing how they make these staffs, you know? And he says that you can have a sheep that's barreling down these hills up, up, up in the Lake District, right, where they have these huge hills that Brian Daub goes hang gliding on, right? And he says that this heavy sheep will become barreling down. He says a good shepherd is able to reach his staff out and just nip it around the sheep's neck. And that sheep, it just stops dead. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And when you think about this church and how many times the elders of this church and the pastors of this church have put out their staffs <laughs> and have just grabbed you by the neck. Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Now, now, come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Alex, you're not putting your hand up? Okay. How about you, Shelley? You, you, oh, you, now, now put up your hands. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Oh, so we have never done that to you, Matt. Well, I know we have. Apparently, we didn't yank you hard enough. We'll try harder. <laughs> Listen. The Apostle Paul is facing death. Jesus... Both of them at that time, what do they say? They say, don't be ashamed of me and my chains. Okay? Don't be ashamed of me and my chains. Because I'm in chains for the gospel. Jesus, obviously. The Apostle Paul also. And the Apostle Paul then goes through the names of those in Asia who have abandoned him, and then he talks about Anesiphorus. And this church is Anesiphorus. You are the people who love Jesus Christ. It's not that you love your pastors and elders. That's what everybody's going to accuse you of. I got a call this week from a man who has driven me crazy and every one of our elders crazy and a number of you individually crazy for years. And on the phone call, I, I didn't answer it, but I got a voice message. And the voice message said, Tim, it's time for you and me to talk man-to-man, and take off the gloves. Well, what he doesn't realize is he's dealing with our elders. He's dealing with our shepherds. He's not dealing with me. And so everybody's going to just say, well, yeah, this is a church that's under the sway of Tim Bailey and his henchmen. It's just a joke. Listen, the truth is I am under the sway of my wife. Okay? Does everybody get it? And I am under the sway of my daughters. Does everybody get it? And I am under the sway of my sons. And I'm under the sway of David Carell. Does everybody get it? I mean, honestly, I don't know that that's, that's probably too delicate a term. Sway. No, no, no. I am under the influence. The pressure. And David Carell is under the pressure of Annie. Hey, anybody know David and Annie? 
And Annie's under the pressure of Allie. In fact, both Annie and Anthony are under the pressure of Allie. Listen, people, together we are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of our repentance, and it is absolutely clear what we're repenting of. We're not ashamed of our musicians who lead us. We're not ashamed of our music and our instruments. We're not ashamed of our preaching. And that's the choice. You're either going to be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his words, or you're going to take pride in Jesus Christ and his words. And so, listen, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Yes, we are persecuted. Yes, the world looks very evil, and it is. Yes, pressure points are everywhere. Yes, you are timid. I'm timid. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. And why? Because he's overcome the world. It's right before his, his, his betrayal. It's right before his trial. It's right before the crown of thorns, the spitting, the nakedness, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial. And he says, I have overcome the world. And so listen, that's the truth. And you know the end of the story, and which side do you want to be on? Which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the winning side that's losing, or do you want to be on the losing side that's winning? I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of the people here who love Jesus Christ. It's my privilege to preach to you and to love you and to serve you because you're not ashamed of Jesus. And so I'm thankful to the bottom of my heart for all of you. You children. And yeah, there have been children that have fallen by the wayside. But I'm looking to see generation after generation of faithfulness here. I don't want you to grow up being ashamed. I'll tell you a little story about Michael. My daughter, Michael, wave your hand. Michael was in high school. She decided she was going to go down to People's Park and witness to the, to the people down there. And she's going to work at the soup kitchen and witness there. And after a while of doing this, she started to have a little bit of sort of a contrarian spirit to her. You know what I mean by contrarian? No, you don't. Um, cantankerous? What, what would it be? Obstreperous? Okay. Huh? Yeah, an attitude. Now do you know what I mean? She had an attitude, you know? And Michael was such a sweetheart. And why did Michael have an attitude? It was so sad. She was a teenager, but that didn't mean you have to have an attitude. And so I asked her one day, I said, Michael, why are you always in a bad mood now, you know? And she said, 
well, I'm not. And I said, yeah, but you've got an attitude. You've copped an attitude. What's the attitude about? Well, what, you know what it, what it came out about? It came out that Michael was, was, was irritated that every time she talked to people about Jesus, they said that she was only doing it because she was a pastor's kid. And so Michael was now changing her behavior to prove that it wasn't because she was a pastor's kid. In other words, people putting pressure on her to deny that she loved Jesus and to say she was only a pastor's kid and was doing what the pastor told her to do was now causing Michael to sin. <laughs> Think about that. Okay, I'll sin just to show you that I, I'm being righteous because I want to be righteous, and so I'll sin, and that will, I mean, and this is how the world gets us going. And so listen, kids, kids, you don't have to sin because your friends say that you're just a goody-two-shoes. You don't have to sin because you're a Christian. You can just be righteous and holy and pure. From right now, you can just be pure. You don't have to sin. Because if you're pure, you're going to make me happy. You're going to make your mommy and daddy happy. You're going to make Jesus happy. And he will bless you. And when he returns, he won't be ashamed of you. Okay? So be pure. Be holy. Confess your sins right away. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious church that you have allowed all of us to be a part of. Father, we do confess our sins. Not a day goes by that we don't feel a temptation to be ashamed of you and of your people and your church. Father, would you please help us to see the victory so that we will live every moment remembering that Christ is victor over sin and death. And would you please, Father, give us faith to glorify you every day. Help us, help us, Father. Help us because we are very, very weak. Help our children, Father, return to the fold, the sheep that have strayed. And may we welcome them with great rejoicing. Father, thank you. We are of good cheer. We pray that we will have a wonderful party today and that joy will pervade all of us because we know the end of the story that you have overcome the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.